Thank you for tuning in to the Blind and Business Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the Blind and Business Podcast. Today we are joined by Asel. Um, so yeah, Asel, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. As you said, Rebecca, my name is Asel. I um, So I was born with a visual impairment. I've got albinism. Um, and I grew up in the UK. I went to just a normal state school uh, where obviously I went through my GCSEs, my A-levels. Um, and actually, uh, when I was a teenager, I was, um, I was actually quite creative. I really enjoyed um, art. I really enjoyed drama. And one of the things that I enjoyed most exploring within my art is I became really aware about the fact that I have a visual impairment and that maybe I perceive the world slightly differently to other people. Um, And at the time I used to do a lot of uh, sort of painting trying to explore that where I kind of began to realize that um, how we perceive the world is not through only through our eyes but it's also sort of what happens in our brain. Um, So having this realization during um, my teenage years, um, it got me quite interested in psychology. So I ended up uh, doing a bachelor's in psychology at Leicester University. During my bachelor's degree, I actually did a module on uh, visual processing. And this was more of a sort of to do with the physiology of how visual signals are interpreted, um, how things work within your brain. And I thought like, ah, this is really interesting. Um, I want to actually delve not into just um, uh, kind of visual uh visual perceptions in terms of the psychological stuff but I actually wanted to delve into more the kind of uh, mechanisms behind how a vision is processed and how it works physiologically sort of within our brain so um, through going through that experience I was uh, that essentially started a whole long journey for me uh, within the neuroscience domain following that. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, I guess, so then you did a PhD in neuroscience. Um, Can you tell us a bit about it, how you found it? Sure. Um, So there was uh, actually a fair few steps between me doing my my bachelor's and then uh, finally doing my PhD. Um, So maybe I'll go in chronological order just to give a bit of context around that. Um, So as I mentioned, after I finished my bachelor's, I was actually more interested to delve into the kind of uh, biology of uh, of our brains, of our senses, etc. And I wanted to pursue a um, master's in neuroscience uh, that was at UCL. Um, However, when I came to interview, um, it became quite clear that I was very much sort of a human uh, I guess a social scientist at the time and that I didn't have a very good grounding of um, sort of biology chemistry all of these kind of things that you need to study um, natural sciences so they actually gave me a uh, kind of conditional offer where I needed to 
um, I needed to complete this kind of foundation year uh, to essentially uh, learn all the things that I needed to know to be able to successfully complete my master's. Um, I have to say that was very intense. Um, I found it very, um, yeah, just very intense, learning a lot of stuff uh, condensed into essentially one year, um, going into a, a sort of a hard science. It was, um, it was very challenging. There was a lot of material to cover. Um, and actually, since I found that process quite challenging, I ended up doing my master's part-time. And um, actually, my visual impairment had a big impact on me deciding uh, to do my master's part-time because I knew it's... Um, you know, with a with a natural sciences degree, it's much more important to be able to see a lot of things like, let's say, which is being presented on the, the board and stuff like that. Um, so I decided to take my uh, master's part time. Uh, after doing that, I actually worked within a laboratory for a year. Um, where I was essentially a sort of a wet lab scientist. It was very interesting. I was, um, uh, my main topic of exploration was uh, localization and memory. So how we locate ourselves within a, an environment. And within that year, I was able to secure myself a, a scholarship to be able to do my PhD in neuroscience. Um, so this is in 2015, I was finally able to start my PhD, um, uh, which I finished uh, in 2019. No, that's really interesting. And I think um, what you were talking about, like doing, um, yeah, do, doing a PhD and master's uh, in science, with a visual impairment and in natural science um how did you find yeah how did you find it with your visual impairment and um was it mostly okay or or what issues came up um that's a good question i think that it was it was challenging i think it was especially challenging and it was challenging um the sort of further down the line you go, uh, I guess there are less, or like if further up you go up the sort of academic ladder, um, there are of course less examples of, uh, you know, people that have certain limitations, including visual ones. Um, so generally, let's say the environment is not, um, it's not built around someone who, um, has those limitations and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing it's just a kind of a lack of exposure and people don't really know how to help even if they are willing to help so I think a lot of um, it's challenging because a lot of the responsibility falls on you to be uh, to decide first of all what you are capable of doing or not doing. Again, the responsibility falls on you on um, getting the help that you require and also potentially, um, you know, pushing, pushing to, for people to help you. Um, so I think because of these types of things, um, 
it is challenging because essentially the environment doesn't necessarily cater to someone with a visual impairment. Um, however, I do think that it is imp uh, important to sort of um, kind of spread the word, have that representation and um, accept those challenges to you know, because at the end of the day, uh, the more exposure there is, the more um, these types of environments can become more uh, friendly to people that have a variety of different disabilities. Um, so yeah, I would say uh, there are some of those challenges, essentially, um, where people don't know how to help you. Sometimes people are unwilling to help you. Um, and I think it's just a case of just uh, really pushing through with it. Um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, and yeah, how, I guess also, like, how was it for you deciding to move away from, from neuroscience and science when you've spent a long time kind of studying and researching into it? Um, it was, it was a, a definitely a challenging uh, decision to make just because I guess, um, let's say at the end of my PhD, I sort of finally felt like um, I'm kind of getting good at something. Finally, I'm not a newbie anymore and kind of, stepping away from academia and kind of learning everything from scratch and entering as they call it like the real world um at, you know clearly at an older age uh, where a lot of your a lot of your peers are have already established themselves within industry and you're just kind of uh looking for let's say grad jobs and stuff like that it can be quite disheartening um to kind of uh dis decide to leave that all behind uh but i think for me personally there was a number of reasons why um it was worthwhile making that transition um first of all uh just generally like let's say when you're doing a phd and as you climb up that academic ladder um essentially you become more specialized in something that's why you often see people uh that are you know professors and they're really excited about a certain type of protein or a certain type of channel or whatever else it is um it's because essentially you can't remain a generalist within science you need to specialize in something um so that was something that I personally found uh, doesn't suit my personality type. I, I like being interested in many different things. I like being exposed to many different things. And I found uh, the prospect of having to specialize quite uh, restrictive. So that was one of the first considerations. Um, and of course, uh, one of the other uh, big considerations was uh, my visual impairment because even though I was very um, happy to take on those challenges of um, associated with my visual impairment during my PhD, uh, like let's say for example, just in terms of like uh, 
doing experiments in a, a wet lab setting, for example, pipetting or something like that. It is, um, I think it was relatively obvious that these kind of everyday tasks, um, they were uh, more challenging for me to do. They would take me a longer time to get, uh, get better at. They just uh, consumed a lot of my energy, let's just say. So um, it came to a point where uh, I just needed to essentially recognize that I do have a certain limitation. And I think that it would have been very challenging to um, push, push further up that academic ladder, um, knowing that uh, other people essentially uh, might be able to do things faster than me. So after your PhD, you went into technology. Um, can you tell us a bit about kind of your transition into tech, how you transitioned, how you find it? Sure. Um, so basically, um, what got me interested into, in tech in the first place, um, I would say, uh, basically, during my PhD, um, within the first couple of years, I had uh, this idea for a startup. It was completely unrelated to my PhD. Um, it was actually just, um, essentially, I like uh, going out to, uh, I feel like we're all lucky to live in London. I feel like there's obviously a lot of places where we can go out to different restaurants, bars, whatever else to try. And I, um, I thought to myself like, oh, it's really annoying that there isn't an app which lets me um, which lets me uh, record my location recommendations. Uh, just to uh, say that at the time, Google Maps did not have that functionality. So um, I ended up uh, sort of being like, oh, um, I have this idea. I feel like it's a great idea and I want to develop that. And obviously I didn't have the money to pay for a developer to develop the product. So um, myself and my friend, we were like, oh, this might be like a fun hobby project. Why don't we just develop this app ourselves, like try and launch a business, commercialize it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was my first real exposure to kind of uh, programming, to, um, to yeah, um, essentially uh, building out my technical skills. And uh, I realized that I loved it because uh, actually prior to that, I had had exposure to, um, I actually took modules um, in uh, uh, various types of programming. And to be honest, I just didn't get it. I just didn't understand how anybody does it. I felt like it was too hard. Um, but through doing this hobby project, it kind of opened this new world to me. And I found it interesting and fascinating. And what I loved about it is, with me um, actually building an application, I saw it's very tangible. You know, you code in a button and then you see the button on your screen and you're able to like click it or control the way it works. Um, I found that um, experience quite powerful. So that was the, I think, first thing that sort of got me interested in technology. 
Um, following that, um, I was lucky enough to do an internship at Google, which obviously is a huge um, technology company. Um, and again, it sort of reinforced the fact that maybe I belong in the space. I loved that with technology essentially allows you to push boundaries. And I love that it enables humans to do things which uh, were not possible to do prior to that technology existing. Um, and I felt that it's a some, sort of similar thing that you're able to, ex I think it's a similar experience that you have working within science where you feel like you're discovering new things, uh, but technology is, I guess, um, the real world application of discovering new things. And on a sort of practical level, uh, to be able to do that, um, I had to, uh, I went on this kind of self-driven journey to make myself more uh, technical <laughs> in terms of taking various courses, um, you know, instead of, let's say for my PhD, instead of analyzing data in Excel, I like learned how to automate everything, um, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that was my journey into technology and uh, I've been building on that ever since. Wow, I find it so impressive because it seems like already twice in your career, you've pretty much taught yourself into kind of certain industries um, like, yeah, with science, as you were talking about before and now with technology. Can you tell us a bit more about your your time with Google, your internship, what kind of things you did and how you found working at Google? Sure, of course. Um, so um, for my internship, I actually worked at Google Cloud. Um, I was part of an, it's called an inside sales team, uh, where basically, essentially, I mean, your objective is, well, maybe not my personal objective, but the team's objective is to um, sell Google Cloud products. And um, uh, basically the great thing about the Google internship, even though I didn't obviously see myself going to, into sales in the, uh, in the future, um, it's good that they kind of, they allow interns to kind of explore to find themselves to try and um, you would normally uh, have a lot of coffee catch-ups with people to try and understand the different roles that exist within the organization and of course the organization is huge right so um, there's definitely a lot of opportunities. Um, I had a brilliant time during my internship um, in terms of it really uh, opened my eyes to the world outside of academia. Um, it really got me excited about the prospect of, um, again, uh, kind of taking the problem solving skills that I've learned during my PhD and applying it to real world problems, which, uh, you know, uh, Google, I guess, deal with in terms of, of product development and stuff like that. It reinforced the fact that I wanted to be within this kind of tech sphere. Um, 
and yeah, I've, practically speaking, I, as in like, um, I just thought it was really fantastic in terms of even the visual impairment stuff. You know, I disclosed about my visual impairment very early on in the sort of process and uh, you know, they got me a huge screen. They um, helped me with, because um, I actually did the internship at, in Dublin rather than in London they helped me with the move and uh, there was a lot of consideration and care um, taken in terms of the um, adjustments that I needed. So that's really one of the great things about working um, for such big organizations that, you know, uh, maybe they don't have individuals which are have exactly the same impairment as you, but they do um, take the time to really um, make you feel comfortable and make sure that uh, the adjustments are in place to for you to bring most value to the business. So. I have a lot of questions, but one of them, I guess, yeah, is how do you find coding and how did you find learning to code? Um, I mean, with a visual impairment, of course, there are like huge challenges when it comes to coding because obviously every comma every dot uh, etc it like it means something so um there is very little room for error and let's say purely just the limitation of let's say everything on my screen screen is uh very zoomed in um I have a lot of accessibility features on, um, but uh, for me, the, the main thing uh, that I use is just uh, zooming into my screen. Um, but because of that, obviously, you've got a set. Um, so the real estate on your screen is very limited. So let's say when you're zooming into kind of 300%, then of course, uh, things get jumbled. Um, like lines get blurred, it might be a little unclear of, um, you know, where, where you've made some kind of error. So there are those kind of uh, practical challenges around um, uh, coding and uh, being visually impaired. However, I would uh, really say that these challenges are not insurmountable. And I strongly believe that you know we're lucky to live in an age where uh, we do have the technology for example to zoom into things we do have uh, you know access to larger screens um, braille whatever these types of accommodations that people require for their visual impairment um, I, I guess it depends on the severity of uh, visual loss, but of course, um, I think in a majority of cases, it is possible to make um, at le uh, adaptations to at least make the process more manageable. Uh, but I would say the process will never be easy. Um, equally, I feel like um, since we, as visually impaired people, we live in a world which essentially it wasn't designed for us. <laughs> we live in a world which is, uh, we're always thinking about like uh, alternative ways of doing things or um, some kind of coping strategies to try and um, alleviate some of those um, hardships of day-to-day -day life. I feel like this kind of thinking is actually very, um, very useful when um, when programming in terms of 
when it comes to programming, I feel like, of course, it is a technical ability, but to be good at it, you can do the same thing like a million different uh, ways. And I think for us having to always think about these alternate ways of doing things in our day-to-day -day life uh, potentially makes us uh, better programmers. So um, yeah, I would say that maybe vi a visual impairment is both, uh, of course, it makes things harder, but also maybe puts some kind of unique stamp on, on your work. Yeah, I massively agree with what you're just saying. Um, I do think, I mean, it has cons, but also there are like skills that you learn from being visually impaired. I guess also I'm interested in you talking about accessibility and tech has made things very accessible. Um, being within the tech field, what kind of things do you see in the future that would make things more accessible for visually impaired people? I think in general, uh, of course, there are various products which make the world a more accessible place. Like for me personally, I always uh, think that how lucky that I live during the age where I have access to Google Maps, just because, you know, and it seems like such a um, maybe a trivial app to have, but sometimes, let's say when I'm walking around London and stuff like that, I, it sometimes strikes me that like, wow, without this, potentially my life would be so much more limited than it is. You know, these kind of products, which were obviously, uh, let's say, uh, Google Maps, I don't think was necessarily um, visually impaired people were the sort of target audience for that, but of course, uh, apps like this that come out to, I guess, ease day-to-day -day tasks for uh, the majority of people can be really uh, just invaluable for um, individuals like us that have a visual impairment. Um, in terms of looking into the future, um, you know, of course, I can't predict uh, what kind of products there will be, how life will change. You know, I'm, I'm really, really hoping that there's going to be self-driving cars um, because that'll make uh, my life even better and uh, I won't have to rely on uh, friends giving me lifts all the time. Um, and I think it's definitely those types of technologies are definitely within grasp. Um, but in how long um, and what kind of impact it would have uh, on uh, all of us. Uh, yeah, I can't predict, but I know that this industry is really, um, you know, it's been uh, picking up pace throughout these many years and I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. That's really great to hear. <laughs> um, and technology is quite a male dominated area um how do you think it is for kind of for young women wanting to enter the industry um again i i feel like i keep using the word challenging <laughs> within our podcast today but i really just can't think of a better word to describe um essentially a situation of being a woman especially a young woman within a male-dominated uh, industry um you know, just to give you a, a bit of an assessment of how my career 
uh, has panned so far, especially going into the technology space, it would be the most of the time I'm either the only woman in the room in a sort of technical capacity, or I am, you know, definitely within a minority. And of course, there have been certain sort of barriers, certain situations where, um, uh, no, I think it's quite difficult to make me feel uncomfortable per se, but I have been in many situations where, let's say, um, my technical ability has been questioned and uh, perhaps my uh, male colleagues, they haven't uh, they haven't had the same level of scrutiny uh, to their abilities as um, I have. Again, it's very hard to uh, sort of say like, oh, of course, this is sexism or whatever else. Um, I can't, I don't have confirmation of that. But just uh, being in uh, various situations um, throughout my career so far, um, there is definitely, um, you know, it is male dominated. Uh, there is perhaps some kind of subconscious bias that uh, men are more technically able or, you know, they can be trusted more when it comes to these kind of technical things. Um, but again, uh, as with uh, everything else, I don't believe that this should be something that should um, uh, be off-putting uh, for uh, women and uh, in fact I feel like uh, completely the opposite that it should be something that encourages more women to uh, sort of come represent to stand their ground and um, demonstrate that like you know that's not the case because I think the more um, essentially the more you break down those barriers and you as an individual are able to demonstrate like oh you know yes I am a woman and like yes I am able to produce this high level standard of work or whatever else it is I think then uh, generally most people um you know, they uh, do do change their minds, or at least maybe I'm a bit naive, but I uh, I hope so, um, because at the end of the day, I think it's more to do with uh, exposure. It's the same as um, I guess uh, people that have disabilities. The more people have um, exposure to um, people with disabilities who are competent and who are able to do things, uh, I think the more then uh, people can start to question themselves about their preconceived ideas of perhaps like, oh, you know, someone with who's blind can't do X, Y, Z or uh, these sorts of things. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, have you noticed, I guess, an increase of amount of women uh, within tech since you've started um yes um and i'm i'm really a sort of uh, pleasantly um like it's really nice to see that there is more and more women kind of taking technical roles engaging more in sort of like computer science and data science or all of these types of um subjects so uh yeah i would say that there has been an in increase in that but i think uh it is still uh very male dominated and of course 
if you look more towards the kind of leadership roles, of course, um, there is still a lack of representation uh, on those sorts of levels. But I really believe that it's sort of up to us to, to sort of change that and um, to uh, kind of not only take our seat at the table, but assert ourselves that we do belong at that table. Okay, so can you tell us a bit about your current roles, what your day-to-day -day looks like? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'll be honest with you, I've been in my current role only for three weeks. Um, so my day-to-day -day is, uh, is perhaps not as representative um, of what I will be doing in a few weeks' time, um, since I've just sort of completed my onboarding and uh, things like that. So my current job is I'm working at uh, Palantir Technologies. Um, it's a, a software company, and we basically have this uh, great piece of software where, where we're able to... Um, take data from various uh, data sources, um, combine that and essentially help companies uh, make better data-driven decisions. So we essentially help um, provide that sort of infrastructure for companies to be able to uh, take data, which is usually in disparate data sources, which is quite messy, et cetera, et cetera, and bring it to a place where um, decision makers are able to uh, make better decisions by having access to uh, various data, various metrics, etc. Um, so within my role, um, I have, a, I'm called a deployment strategist, which um, perhaps is uh, similar to being a data science consultant, where essentially you try and understand the client's problem, you uh, work with them to understand, uh, you know, what are they actually looking to solve? Um, how are they planning to do that? Uh, what kind of data would, would they like uh, to use? And you uh, take this kind of problem statement and you try and create a solution for them. And uh, it's very, I guess, uh, customer-based. And specifically within my role, um, I'm working with uh, the NHS. Um, so essentially how that works, as I said, there's a lot of uh, customer engagement to work out the problem, uh, try and create, uh, create the correct solution with them, validate that solution, uh, kind of prototyping, validating, iterating, and then um, finally um, um, ensuring that the customer is able to um, you know, then you work with engineers to help build out uh, that solution. Um, and then you uh, essentially deploy and hope that the customer finds it useful. Um, so that's sort of my, my day to day. Uh, so my day to day is uh, quite a lot of meetings trying to understand people's uh, problems and how um, we as Palantir are able to help them with their problems, um, as well as actually uh, creating the solution uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, you need to program out these things, you need to um, essentially create the product which the client uh, will use. Can you tell us a bit about your your time with Blind in Business and how you found Blind in Business and what kind of support uh, they provided? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so I first came across uh, Blind in Business, I think I was still a master student at UCL. Um, and uh, essentially they came to give a talk to, um, I guess, just uh, tell individuals about their services. Um, obviously, when I saw the name, I was like, oh, that sounds quite relevant to me. <laughs> and I went um, to the talk and uh, yeah, I kind of appreciated almost the kind of um, not a hard line approach, but sort of like, you know, we want to get more um, people with visual impairments with, uh, with, with who are blind, etc, into like real jobs, and we're going to do everything to um, break down those boundaries. Um, so I really appreciated that sort of um, attitude, which I think is the first thing that really sort of um, attracted to me to the to the organization and of course um, I thought uh, at the time that it was uh, something quite useful for me to engage in uh, because um, they were advertising services such as like oh well you know help you go through your CV will help you um, will help address questions such as how do you disclose your visual impairment like at what stage of the uh, of the interview process which at the time I you know these are all questions which I didn't have a clear answer to um, so I really um, thought that it was great to have um, uh, essentially an organization which is so tailored towards um, helping individuals like me really find their place in the world. And I really loved, again, the sort of ambition of a blind in business. Um, so after um, engaging with them then, like throughout the years, basically at various times, whenever I've needed, you know, even just some advice, a chat or, or something more tangible, like, um, hey, I have this CV, do you mind having a look? Um, or like, I'm trying to prepare for this interview, uh, let's do some kind of mock interview practice. Um, I've always uh, gone to blind in business and uh, they have really been quite fantastic in terms of um, helping me prepare for, for stuff, uh, just giving me general advice, support, uh, you know, reading through contracts, these, these sorts of things. Um, so having, um, having that has been really valuable throughout the, um, throughout the years. Amazing. Thank you. So thank you so much, SL, for joining us today. Um, yeah, no thank problem. you. Yeah, no problem at all. It was great to chat to you and uh, yeah, hope uh, someone finds this useful. <laughs>